Hello and welcome to the Xenothesis Podcast. In this episode, episode 58, we're covering chapters 1 and 2 from part 2, Exile of Book 3, Imago of the Xenogenesis Trilogy by Octavia E. Butler. My name is Richard Acton, and I'm joined, as always, in this uh, dangerous rainforest by my co-host. Michael Glinka. Hi, everyone. How are you doing, Richard? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, I, I thought we might um, open up this episode with one of our little sort of content corner segments that we've done a couple of times before. We talk yeah. about things we've been reading and watching. Sure, sure. Um, and uh, so I, I note, I note, I uh, pointed out before I was kind of uh, exploring the world of anime. <laughs> oh yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, a couple you've of things the dark to side. add to the yes. <laughs> A couple of things to add to, add to my uh, list of uh, animes that I've been enjoying, uh, and uh, obviously, I think uh, Doctor Stone is one that uh, anyone oh, yeah. who knows me w- would very likely have suggested to me, <laughs> uh, and that's uh, spectacular. Um, yeah, I love that. Uh, it's uh, uh, yeah, uh, like yay science. I think is more or less the uh, <laughs> the punchline of that whole thing. Um, uh, I, I yeah, don't want to reveal anything about the premise, but uh, it's uh, yeah. But it's really good, honestly. I yeah. absolutely also recommend it for those who are interested in science because I've read the manga, the whole manga, and obviously uh, okay. um, watched the anime. And I need to say, manga. I mean, the movie the animation is amazing. Obviously, they really keep it to to the manga. But uh, I personally thought that the beginning of the manga is much much more interesting than the later on stages. But because there's more focus on the very early stages of the science development, right? The materials and the you know, all those like stuff that you have to work on. Because the later okay. on, obviously, it's like more modern stuff type of thing. But honestly, it's great. It's really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, um, no, we talked about uh, HPMOR being one of the kind of uh, things that uh, uh, yeah, it, it inspired this podcast. Uh, and like, there's there's a certain similarity in some dimensions uh, to, to that story and, and Dr. Stone. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's slightly different. Uh, it's, it's some different aspects, but some also similarities. Absolutely. Absolutely. A, the, the other anime is also somewhat similar uh, in, in some ways. Uh, it's uh, Ascendance of a Bookworm, uh-huh, which uh-huh. is kind of like, uh, I, I describe it as a, a bit like Dr. Stone, but with slightly less like, uh, like high octane, you know. I I I, I freaking love science so much that I'm gonna flex my brain so hard my hat explodes. Right? It's it's a bit more. It's a bit like, a bit more like chill. <laughs> to be honest, uh, um, when you mentioned it to me the last time, um, I actually got and watched all the three se- uh, seasons. <laughs> <laughs> Already? It was yes. like last week. <laughs> I've absolutely devoured it. I honestly thought it was go it was going to go somewhere else. Then, hmm. like the the pacing is a bit different, obviously. And as yeah. you said, it's not as high octane as Doctor Stone. It's really interesting because it's it's more of um, less of you know all the like very important science. More of like this girl is fanatic of a book. Of books yeah, and it's... just everything related to that is you know there like the science behind so it's, it's really good really good yeah it's it's much more kind of like narrowly focused on i want books back in this universe rather than like science more generally but there's kind of a like a lot of other stuff is is entailed by the necessity by the like mission of getting books back <laughs> yes yes and it's, it's sort of it's it's an interesting story because there's a lot of um interestingly 
there's a lot of character development of the side characters and you really mm. can um enjoy it's not like the like it's not like the typical isekai so the you know reincarnated mm. to another world type of thing it's more of uh you know it's more realistic i would say in a lot of aspects so yeah yeah it's quite 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 grounded a little bit more slow paced uh, yeah. very wholesome um, yeah but yeah uh, i uh, uh enjoyed that immensely yeah it was kind of a, a, a delightful little anime yeah. yes absolutely 100% i would also also highly recommend watching it uh, on the other hand if i if my if i may i wanted to talk about mm-hmm. uh, a manga well uh, i've been reading recently um mm-hmm. but uh, it's actually it's not that new it's actually from 1982 uh, <laughs> i'm talking about hayao uh, hayao miyazaki's uh, nozika of the valley of the wind obviously there was a movie made about it uh, made on uh, on that manga in 1984 it was his first animated movie and i cannot mm. recommend enough um that animation or the manga itself actually because i think the Mm. manga itself is even more beautiful and more detailed obviously than the the movie and um if i may because this is a story that um it blew my mind honestly that the fact that because of americans we almost not got any of the miyazaki movies at all in the western uh, world and (laughs) it is is crazy because Nozika uh, is a beautiful story about, you know, a world that sur- survived an apocalyptic war um, and the main character, the title character, Nozika, being a, like, a connection between the human and the world surrounding. So the, toxi- the very toxic world of, like, fungus and, you know, um, well, there's not really much of, like, plants anymore in, in the, because of the apocalypse. And basically, the whole manga and anime focus on, like, the anti-war and environmental themes because... Um, Miyazaki based his story on a on the mercury poisoning of the wastewater that accumulated in the Minamata Bay in Kumamoto Prefecture in 1956. It was a really serious um, environmental disaster. It took, I think, if I read, if I remember correctly, uh, 40 billion yen to and several years to clear out the whole area of all those, um, you know, mercury compounds. It was really awful. Wow. And so that's the thing. So Miyazaki created the movie. It was quite, you know, widely successful in, in Japan. And then he thought that, oh, you know, America, great friends of Japan, uh, will, uh, we will, uh, you know, try to publish the movie there. And so he did contact some uh, companies and finally specifically Manson International uh, specifically directed by uh, or Harvey Weinstein, yes, the same one, <laughs> um, said, yeah, we will do it. And basically, because of him, we almost got no more movies from uh, Miyazaki because they edited the movie so much that they almost completely removed the pro- main protagonist, Naosika, from it. It was released under the name called Warriors of wow. the Wind, and it had the poster with characters that didn't even exist in the animation, and it flopped. It literally flopped in there. And when Miyazaki heard about it, he hated it so fucking much that he said, mm-hmm. like, he, he promised that no more ever he will ever release any movie in the West uh, if they're going to edit it. Like, literally never. 
and then wow. Disney came. As, as if Weinstein could be more of a dick. <laughs> I honestly <laughs> like, like um, Disney at the time. Then con- came to uh, to Miyazaki. He was like, "Listen, we will release it." But because Disney at the time was like still very PG thirteen, they didn't have those different studios mm-hmm. working. You know, it's still under Disney umbrella. So like they like so Weinstein again said like, "Oh, I can you know oh, I can translate and publish it again. We'll cut those." P-. And Miyazaki, when he fucking heard that, he sent the Disney executives. Like, katana with a note saying no cuts <laughs> and he fucking won they didn't edit anything it was beautifully dubbed and basically you know released in uh in, in america and then it spread to europe but like honestly like just by mm. then me weinstein should have been in jail just because of that <laughs> and it would have probably saved a lot of people after that you know for the ne- le- next 40 years <laughs> I swear, yeah, like yeah. I, I to this day, I'm, I, I, when I read it, I'm like, how can you even do this? Like, honestly, it is crazy. Like, it, they dumped it down in America. It, honestly, they made it an action movie instead of a beautiful story about, you know, the the fact that the environment was completely destroyed and like how we need to, you know, an anti-war messages and it just it blows my mind. It is, it is interesting how little Hollywood seems to think of the American public, right? <laughs> It They're really, always trying to dumb yeah. things down. <laughs> it really is crazy how be, like belittling this behavior is towards American audience, right? Because mm. you would think like, oh, if it doesn't have explosion every fucking two seconds, it's you know, it's not gonna be selling. It's like really a lot of things where they try and do like a, a weird like American cultural translation almost, where they take like TV shows made in other countries and they make an American version where they kind of like sand off all of the uh, stuff that they don't think the american audience is going to get which yeah. is like it just seems very strange to me things like um i think they tried and failed really hard <laughs> to to do like an american version of the in-betweeners oh yeah i I've, I've heard about it i saw that like i was like american in-betweeners and i listened to like short cuts like this is honestly that, that yeah. would never work <laughs> right? yeah. you can't that's just not uh yeah and even things like when they did the um the harry potter books right the the uh, sorcerer's stone rather than the philosopher's stone like as a philosopher Seriously? was a fucking difficult word to remember like honestly uh yeah, it's no but nuts. it's crazy that how how the you know the american hollywood yeah just dumps down things like honestly it's just um i don't know it just feels to me that yeah, like I, I cannot highly recommend enough reading or watching Nausicaa. Like it's it's just mm. I, I just love the drawings. It's a really old style, obviously, the, the hand drawn environments and everything, and they just they're just so beautiful. So I honestly alongside mm. Doctor Stone and Ascendant of the Bookworm, obviously Nausicaa won a lot of uh, you know prizes and you know so it's not the same level, but it's like I those three those I would highly recommend. You know. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, uh, while we were talking, I had a couple of other thoughts that uh, I will just quickly slip Go on. in here. Um, following up on the like American cultural translation thing, mm-hmm. there's one show. It's a really good show, but it has a very strange um, like uh, component to it that relates to that. So, Sex Education. It's a Netflix show. Uh-huh. Uh, it's very good, uh, but there's this very strange aspect of it. It's it's set in, or it seems to be set in the uk right everyone has british accents they speak with like uk vernacular but they attend a school which is like very clearly in the y valley in wales from the scenery okay um but the culture is like an american high school 
it it it's I, I don't it's a very strange like combination of things because it's it it's got like all these very like obviously British America British like cultural components to the yeah. way that they speak and other aspects of it, but then like the way that they behave and the like the drama of of the uh, you know interpersonal interactions and the way that they do things like you know, sports and, and and lockers and stuff is all very much like the, the yeah that's american, american high school stereotype yeah. like translated it, and I, I it was it was very kind of like a, a weird combination because I, I think i could see it if you came from like if you came from the american perspective it might make sense to you because you have like all of the like high school cultural tropes like met yeah. but you don't have any of the like british secondary school stuff <laughs> as like cultural components you just have the accents and like the vernacular which is like, it's, really uh, weird it, yeah it's very strange but um it, yeah despite that oddity it's a good show <laughs> i mean honestly that's that's just yeah honestly th this is this this whole like translation into american environment and it's just makes no sense like and the, the thing it shows often like when shows that are widely popular um in you know made in foreign countries they're popular in america and then they try to make them and obviously flop because hmm. i mean i think maybe with this they're, they're trying to save on on that problem right they, they want to make it accessible to both british and american audiences yeah. and british audiences are familiar from you know, uh, uh, american cultural exports with the you know american high school drama paradigm mm -hmm. so that's not like a foreign thing to them but the uh yeah <laughs> whereas the the sort of the sort of jokes you get about like british secondary school culture it probably wouldn't land so well with an american audience like similarly to that whole thing with the attempting to do the in-betweeners translation <laughs> yeah 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 but yeah that yeah that got me thinking in that direction um one final thing to mention mm -hmm. is I recently read a book by Frank Herbert oh. um, called Destination Void, Okay, um, which is kind of an extended exploration on the topic of creating like a sentient artificial intelligence under conditions where it's very high stakes that you do create such a sentient artificial intelligence uh without de revealing too much okay. detail about the plot but uh yeah it's a very interesting one I don't, I, I don't know why i hadn't heard more about this before um and it has a very cool kind of like 1950s ish era kind mm -hmm. of computing aesthetic like the, the the ways that they interact with the computers uh, oh, and okay. the sorts of computational hardware that they uh are making use of uh, feel like they'd fit into that kind of era but yeah yeah it's uh uh i found it a very interesting book <laughs> i guess the june over you know shadowed a lot of his work so that's why you know unless you dig into it don't usually yeah, hear about yeah. it yeah it makes sense but yeah i guess let's finish the uh, reading yes. co watching con and then move on so i wanted to say apologies for the last episode i actually went uh, through COVID and we and I forgot to put my notes the summary of the part one. So this episode totally will cover the, sum the part one <laughs> summary of the book three and then we'll get to the chapters one and two of the part two. So I guess it'll be a good reminder what happened overall in, the, in that part and then we can jump into the new chapters. Mm -hmm. So I guess... In the part one, Metamorphosis, uh, of the Imago book, we are um, introduced to a new character, J 
Chodas, a child of Lilith, Tino, Tichan, Achajas, and Nikanj, who was supposed to be male. And but a long time has passed since the first colonization of Earth with Lilith and, you know, from starting book one. And the result is that Nikanj got a bit careless. And the result is that Jodas is undergoing metamorphosis to become an Uloi construct, first of its kind. Which the same thing happened with Akin, right? Mm. So yeah, kind of. <laughs> Nikanj is being a bit uh, careless in his a lot of aspects. Mm. Uh, but yeah, but as the child undergoes the metamorphosis, Nikan tries to convince everyone that it's perfect and there won't be any problem for the Onkali population, that its latent powers won't cause destruction of the society. Um, and of course, as the child is undergoing the metamorphosis, its senses get stronger and starts to exhibit, uh, and they start to exhibit themselves in the environment for, by basically unconsciously probing the uh, environment itself. It starts to genetically modify the area uh, it was sleeping on and or its own body, making a lot of mess in, in the process. Hmm. And the fact that Jodas became an Uloi was the simple fact that every Uloi felt the same as Nikanj, you know, lonely because they were not the only ones that didn't have the same sex children, you know, just male constructs, female constructs, but no Uloi constructs. And basically, thanks to that perspective of Jodas being a part human, part uh, Onkali and being an Uloi, we learn more about the um, aspects of being an Uloi and especially, especially the organ called Yashi where the genetic engineering and, st and storing of the genetic material takes place. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the Oankali organelle as well. Yeah, and Oankali uh... organelle and how they, you know, they did those, uh, how they sometimes leave the organelle to, uh, to wait, you know, thousands if, of not millions of years to develop another carbon-maybe-based uh, organism that then will, you know, can meet again with the original Oankali and yeah, kind of a, create a not trade. Exactly a a trade process initially, but like a, a seeding of a potential future trade partner yeah. who already has the uh, the uh, equipment, I suppose. Exactly, and we learn more in the chapter in this part about the necessity of focus that Jodas needs to exhibit to control its powers, because at any second it could modify a bacteria on its body to, and that the bacteria could become a deadly pathogen and wipe out the entire civilization. So yeah. Eventually, where the family arrives to consensus that they need to go into an exile to let Jodas learn its own abilities because the alternative would be going to a mothership to be under constant surveillance of other Onkali, uh, by other Onkali and especially adult Uloi. And basically, the group ends up uh, you know, going on a journey, being ambushed by human resistors who shoot Jodas. Uh, but at the end of the day, everything is fine. They rescue another human... Uh, named Marina, and they catch those who shot the child, and then basically the part ends with the family yet again preparing for another journey into exile. Yeah, so we get a little bit of a a reset. <laughs> basically, <laughs> no. yeah. Mm. Starting again on the uh, attempt to be exiled, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> bit of a weird way of doing it. So... Yeah, it's a good point, actually, that um, mm -hmm. uh, Nikanj also kind of... Uh, you know, messed up with Akin uh, being male, and then the uh, rest of the Oankali consensus seems to be giving Nakanj a fair amount of latitude. Yeah, on, uh, this kind of thing. There's a lack of uh, enforcement, I would say, on Nakanj because honestly, <laughs> oh, he made the first human male uh, construct, and it's just like, okay, we don't know anything about you no know, that that boy, so we'll have to observe him very carefully. And you know, we all know the story from the book too. 
Mm. And now it, the same story, but in all of your constraints, just like, okay, nice. Well, you know, I mean, get, get to think uh, Nakanji is a bit of a troublemaker. <laughs> Honestly, yes. <laughs> no, although they did never pay any attention to what he had what it had to say um, before, right? So yeah, I think uh, got a bit of a rebellious streak. It, it exhibits itself, yeah. Now, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there were so few. We didn't cover that many top topics in the in the the last part to be honest there were, we had an extensive um discussion about the um, resist disease and the blood mm-hmm. system evolution and we talked about the mitochondrial inheritance um because that was all related to the um the, the you know the yashi and the the onkali organelle right so that's Indeed. why we talked mm-hmm. about that but we also talked a bit, you know, like about senses, smell, and sight, and the interesting topic of the owl uh, brain size being so small compared to its eye size. And ah, uh, yes, yeah, the eyes take up all the space. <laughs> yeah, so we didn't have many topics, but although the resist disease and the blood system evolution was quite interesting, and yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, a bit of uh, revisiting mitochondrial inheritance that came up also yeah. in the um, the special on uh, Gattaca, I think. Uh, and yeah, we've had a lot, a lot of occasion to discuss various aspects of uh, sensory uh, enhancement. I think we had a bit more emphasis on smell this time, Ryan. Right? Yes, Talking this one the, was more about um, smell. Yeah, yeah, and the sort of, uh, because of all the pheromones of, uh, that don't tell you release. But yeah, it was it was an interesting short part um, and introduced to a new character, uh, which is. Quite interesting. I think that Oloi, I think from all the perspectives, Oloi constructs are the most interesting because as you will see in the summary of the next two chapters, for chapter one and two, Chodas is uh, messing around quite a bit with his body. Yes, yeah. That's, uh, it's, it's very interesting to have the uh, the change in perspective again, right? The um, I think this first part's also kind of introducing us a little bit to those those shifts, right? We have yeah. this closer perspective on on Jordas. We have um, a, a more Alankali perspective, a more Loy perspective than we have had before. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a little bit of uh, introducing that shift from from the previous book. Yeah, yeah. So I guess let's go to my chapter one prediction. Mm-hmm. So I. Wasn't sure what's going to happen, to be fair, because we know Octavia and her time shifts and time passes and stuff like that. So obviously mm-hmm. there was no exile onto the ship because that was my prediction last time. Like, oh, they will be exiled to the ship this time. But now it's again on Earth. Um, but this time, you know, a journey further away from all the resistors because you know, obviously the village of Pascal, you know, didn't do a great... Uh, uh, yeah job like you know the people that we already told it's predicted that it's gonna be the creme de la creme of all the resistors being left behind so obviously Mm. so now they had to journey further and i thought maybe um obviously there's going to be some changes obviously but the question was is jodas going to be able to uh control his powers its powers right so that that's the Mm. That's the always biggest question, like if if it's going to be able to prevent creating tumors. Yeah, so it seems like it's been kind of a bit hit and miss up to this point. Right? Yeah, it was it was pretty good with um, uh, Marina. Marina was it? Yeah, Marina. Yeah, yeah. But uh, 
Yeah, le- less so once she was gone. <laughs> yes. So, yes. yeah, it seems to depend a bit on uh, it, its level of interest in the uh, subject of its modifications. Yeah. So, so let's get to chapter one, because I feel like the, literally the beginning of the chapter really um, uh, shows the what Joda's been messing around and what mm-hmm. are the... It's, subconscious sort of uh, control of the body um so in chapter one the group this time did not stop at the island they originally intended to stay on because it was too clo- close to pascal so they journeyed down the river each time trying to bypass any human territory and in some cases you know the human villages would not even notice that they were there but in some they would be followed until they were gone out of their territory so that's that. So they're kind of managing to avoid the resistors by just going down the river. Yeah, basically. And as the time passed and the group was drifting on the river, Joda started to change its appearance to more to become more like amphibian-like, having webbed fingers and toes, lost all hand, get more uh, instead of get more sensory tentacles, and its skin became more gray-green. Like so, mm-hmm. it's it's obvious that the body. Um, is changing uh, like sub- he's changing the sub it's changing the subconsciously the body to mimic the environment it is right yeah yeah it's very much kind of uh reshaping itself to reflect whatever is kind of um I don't know, useful or interesting to it in in the environment yeah yeah so uh <laughs> it's first time when the Liliths probably scolded her children uh because she scolded jodas for letting its body to do whatever it wants to it looked deformed and she specifically said, I wish you could see through my eyes. Deformity is as bad as illness. And that made Jodas walk away from a lift because which he never which it never did before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a <laughs> Uh, I think I, I made the the joke of Jodas uh, uh, being the the creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> Literally, <there>. uh, yes. <laughs> uh, although perhaps more. Uh, um, and a more asymmetrical, I don't know, some some weirdness going on here that's that's giving Lilith the creeps. <laughs> yeah, I mean to be fair, like can you imagine you just like you know swimming in the river and suddenly your friend comes out instead of like normal skin color, like having green, grayish color, web fingers and like no hair suddenly because oh I'm just river I get that castle. It's just like well, really. Mm. That's uh, I don't know, like gillyweed on steroids. Basically. <laughs> Exactly, yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, 50, 15 days after the beginning of the journey, an archer uh, shot Lilith, so, some resistor archer, and you can't cut him. And I, I just love this part. Dragged him unconscious, destroyed all the weapons, changed the color of his skin from brown to, uh, sorry, for his uh, color of his hair from brown to white, and made his mm. skin age to look like an elderly person. Just, yeah, this wow. seems kind of messed up. <laughs> like, honestly, Nikans, just wow. Yeah, yeah, very much a, uh, a, a don't F with us kind of an attitude here. Honestly, uh, like, because Nikans knows that, like, the out appearance of the humans is very important for them. So he just completely mm-hmm. messed up with it. It's like, don't ever get close to us. No, don't, no one fucks with Nikanj's family, basically. Yeah. So this guy's going to wake up thinking he's aged like 30 years. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Um, and then, so Nikanj then and heal, went and healed Lilith, but even though she didn't need help because, you know, her body was already modified to survive and fix any damage. 
even if it's damage yeah. of an arrow hitting a kidney. Yeah, he's just been shot in the kidney with an arrow, which is like n- not at all an insignificant injury. Exactly, but you know, but mate take, but mates take take care of each other, and he can't refuse to let Lilith heal heal by herself. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a like a casual turn to this whole like Lilith was shot in the kidneys kind of uh, yeah. <laughs> incident, right? <laughs> but I suppose with her healing abilities and, and the Kanji nearby, it's not uh, not that much of a big deal. But yeah, Jordas is from the 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 inside doesn't feel terribly concerned about all this yeah absolutely so 21 days after the start of the journey dichan suddenly ditched the group and came back with a man carrying a man whose leg was basically rotting away uh it seems that man broke his leg um and lost consciousness because of the necrosis poisoning his body Mm -hmm. um this time nikanj told jodas to heal the man to remove the leg and then stimulate growth of a new one um, Jodas initially didn't want to do it because it knew it wouldn't be able to let go of the man like it couldn't let go of Marina. Unfortunately, the man was as old as Marina, so it wouldn't be a good mate anyway. Uh, eventually, Ira convinced Jodas, though, that it should try help the man and then share uh, him with her after the healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so th- I think it was this guy probably fell out of a tree or something. Um, yes, yes. And managed to break his leg, yeah. Mm. Yeah. But another thing I was kind of thinking about here with uh, how um, like interested uh, Jordas is in in basically every human he it, it encounters, um, I was thinking about kind of mate choosiness in in, in the Uloi, right? They, mm-hmm. they don't seem, at least at this point, to be very selective about which uh, mates they're interested in, which is a bit of an oddity from kind of a like game mm-hmm. theoretic perspective on on mate choice because. It seems like, especially given that they mate for life, they should be very choosy, very selective yeah. about uh, you know, who they have as a mate, as that's a very you know high investment uh, decision um, because you know, they're going to be involved in, in, in engineering and creating the offspring with those partners and raising them and so mm-hmm. on. Although I suppose part of it might be that they have... Um, the ability uh, to modify the genes, so it's, it's not really yes. that... Like crucial, there's a higher degree of control over the the genetics of, of the kids from the Uli partner. Yeah, uh, so may, maybe that's uh, that downweights it a little bit, but it from um, it's kind of a, another uh, like insight into the relative importance of biology and culture in Oankali society. Right, they're perhaps less picky on cultural components and more picky on biological components, but it's a, a, a hard to say. But yeah, it's an interesting, uh, an, an interesting little thought that I, I thought it was worth uh, thinking about that, uh, that aspect of, of um, the uh, the Uloi behavior here. Maybe it's just a, a component of. Um, uh, Uloi adolescence, as it were, yeah. this period between their metamorphoses, where they have this kind of like um, promiscuously explorative phase, where they're kind of uh, you know, getting attached to many different potential. I mean, uh, partners that happened but, with Akin, uh, no? Like, yes, uh, him traveling around. Similar kind of thing, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then maybe, well, maybe they get pickier when they become adults through the second metamorphosis, but I suppose we don't necessarily know yet. But the thing is, I think um, Achjas explains this to um, sort of explains it a bit um, later on mm, um, about what, about the you know the Uloi possessiveness type of thing and that uh, mm. being so attached oh, to, um... to 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 potential mates. 
Yeah, there's kind of a competitive element with the adult boy, yeah. um, which yeah, yeah. is an interesting factor. Yeah. Mm. So Jodas knew that siblings remember their Oloi uh, siblings because it heard Arches and Dijan talk about theirs, but they have not seen it in de- decades. And Oloi belonged to the kin group of its mates, and siblings were not part of it. And that's what happened to it in air. That's why, you know, the whole sharing, it, it probably they will not speak to each other for a long time once they mate. So. Mm-hmm. But back to the man. Uh, by the time Jodas connected to it, the man was like, unconscious. Um, he had puncture wounds and deep bruises. And as Richard mentioned earlier, he must have fell from a tree, probably collecting some fruits or, um, from, from, from it. The leg was a total loss. So Jodas stopped the circulation, diverted it from the leg, and, ma- and then made skin to, uh, to create a barrier between the necrotic tissue and the healthy one. The rotting leg just then detached itself uh, at that point. So Jodas was like, okay, can you guys pick it up and take it away? So, you know, he di- when he wakes up, doesn't, you know, he doesn't see it. <laughs> yeah. <it's> just <laughs> Imagine the, the resistors encounter that in the future. <laughs> yeah, it'd be crazy. It's like a random human leg that's like kind of uh, detached itself in a, in, a, in a way that would, I imagine that would look weird, right? Because it's going to, it's not like it's been sliced off. No, it's, exactly. It's, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then it started activating genes that were dormant since fertilization to stimulate the regrowth of the leg. They would have to camp for a few days before the leg completely grows back again. It was dark by the time Jodas finished. Nikanj was near waiting for it. Nikanj could sense that Jodas did not want it to touch the man. And here's what the book says. Thorny, possessive Uloi child, it said, pulling me against it in spite of my stiffness. I must examine him at this once. But if what you tell me and show me matches what I find in him, I won't touch him again until it's time for him to go, unless something goes wrong. Jodas initially thought, fought back, but then obeyed and went to sit with Ahjas and Dichan. They fed it and Ahjas told Jodas about premature Uloi. Their possessiveness is a bridge to understand humans, but they won't be able to become mates until they become an adult. They can't form a true bond until then, and that's why all other adult Uloi feel like potential suspects that could steal their mates. It will have to wait. (laughs) So, yeah. It seems that basically Uloi, uh, premature Uloi, are just basically very uh, possessive teenagers. Hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> an interesting trait. Yeah, I, I suppose the um, uh, yeah, I, I, that could be part of the the pressure that produced that that kind of uh, tendency to latch on um, to individuals more yeah. quickly, right? If there's competition from the the adults, then that uh, that kind of makes a bit more sense um, in this phase. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the chapter ends with Nikanj coming to join them and telling that Jodas did a great job, which is surprising how well it can handle humans, but. Constructs and Onkali are still problematic for it. But anyway, Tino made crutches for the man and left some clothing for, uh, clothing for him. Also, Jodas should also put some clothes on for that resistant man. It would be very difficult already for him to accept Jodas as is. You know, being a, <laughs> a amphibian-like being. Yes. <laughs> oh, as we say, cre- creature from the Black Lagoon. Exactly, because, uh, honestly. Yeah. We, we like the most uh, the most current of references. Honestly, I wonder podcast. how many people actually will get that reference because I get it. <laughs> honestly, I'm surprised that I get it, but I do. It's from like 1954. Yeah, so. honestly, like <laughs> the only reason I know is because um, I've been really into uh, movies by Ray, Ray Harryhausen. That's the name I was looking for. 
Okay, so is this the the special effects guy? Yes, he's the special effects guy. He was the one who created the special effects of uh, you know the, all the skeletons and stuff like that, all those monsters. So um, ah, okay. I have a book about him mm-hmm. because there was a um, in Edinburgh there was a um, gallery uh, of his work ah. and it was fantastic. <laughs> it was beautiful and it's crazy how detailed the, the you know the those puppets are and dolls and. So that's why I, was, I know the creature from Black Lagoon because I looked into other sort of similar uh, special effects creators and that's why I know. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if many people really know from 1950, reference from 1950s. <laughs> I think I might know it by a relay from something like, um, I don't know, Scooby-Doo or something. I think it might have been a reference uh, to that. That could be, yeah, that's <laughs> very more very likely that that might be the case as well, yeah. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, um, let's go to the chapter two prediction. Yes. Uh, so, what do you have predicted for chapter two? So, obviously, the man awakens beside Jodas, being very surprised by awakened by a frog looking on Kali, and mm-hmm. um, but knowing life, Jodas probably changed uh, its appearance not to scare the man, um, because we know that it changed the appearance of itself when it was connected to Marina, so it probably changed to mimic. What the man preference has prefers prefers to mm-hmm. to um, over, but it's definitely not a pleasant awakening, and probably just gonna be a bit of a "don't fucking touch me" type of thing, you know. Mm. Okay, okay. So uh, I suppose it depends how fast uh, it can pull off a a change of appearance, right? <laughs> yes, how depending how quickly it can do it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in the chapter two, um, the man and Jolas awake. Uh, together and as everyone can imagine the man gets startled so Jodas had to calm him down Uh, it explained to him that his leg was dying so they removed it but it will grow back again Um, then they introduced themselves the man's name was Joao Eduardo Vilas da Silva a Brazilian Portuguese man Um, of course when the man heard about the new leg he started panicking quite a surprise I'm surprising yeah Again, Jodas had to explain that it will take a few days for it to start looking like a normal leg. Zhao then asked who are, who are they, and Jodas explained. You know, he asked if Jodas is a woman or a man, but Jodas told him neither. But to our surprise, Jodas changed its body to become more like female. And here's a bit of from the part from the book. I'm not an adult yet, no? You appear to be an adult. You appear to be a young woman. Too thin, perhaps, but very lovely. Mm, yep. So <laughs> already uh, changing to... Uh try and uh, reflect the preferences of this uh, yeah. this guy. It's like <laughs> it's like teenagers, uh, you know, and you know early 2000s, you know, like going becoming emo is like no mom, it's not a face mom. But it's basically Jodas <laughs> doing the same thing just changing its appearance however it feels like. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose it has uh, more uh, flexibility of bodily f- self-expression. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> It wasn't a surprise for Jodas, though. It what body wanted him to please him, so it started changing to match the man's preferences. But Jodas explained to jo- Joao that it's neither man nor woman, but an uloi, because an only uloi have the power to regenerate body parts. The moment Jodas mentioned that it was an uloi, Joao immediately changed its ad- his attitude. It was as though the air between us became a crystalline crystalline wall, transparent but very hard. I could not reach him th- through it anymore. He had taken refuge behind it, and even if I touched him, I would not reach him. The man hid basically behind an ice-cold shield, a rejection, or rather revulsion. 
Jodas asked him, why does the man hate it? Uh, hate Jodas when it saved his life? That's when the man told it. You make men as though they, uh, you take men as though they were women. That the uncle in the human, their human horse cause all the trouble, treat all mankind as their woman. Yeah, that's a, so we've got fairly uh, sexist attitudes from Drow. From <laughs> Honestly, mm. like, no. um, that attitude would not get you far. No. But hey. No. We kind of get that premise rejected, sort of, by, by Jordas, although he's more kind of rejecting the framing that, um, uh, its parents are not um, like willing participants yeah. in uh, this activity, but not really commenting specifically on Zhao's characterization of the uh, uh, relationship mm -hmm. between men and women as he sees it. But yeah, yeah. So that's that's the thing. Like um, in a way, I sort of get this attitude, you know, like because I mean, obviously, look at the market at the moment. I mean, how objectified you know women are at the moment the whole situation so but we've discussed this before this whole you know the, it's it's a trade but the onkali really only get anything out of it not the humans and then only because of akin we get the, you know a human agjai as they call it you know the separate human population on mars mm -hmm. right so yep yep we have uh a more uh pro onkali perspective i suppose you might say from uh uh, Jodas than we have had potentially previously because uh, uh, so some some of the stuff that as a as a in a human perspective might see uh, from a, a different lens might see through a different lens uh, or frame differently as a problem uh, yeah we, we're getting a fairly Owen Carly uh, uh, favoring tint on the lenses through which we're looking at things yeah absolutely Jodas. absolutely so. Jodas, on the other hand, clearly stated to him that it's no, it knows that's not what the man feels. Jodas' human parents are here and it won't heal him further if he, he will insult them anymore. And the chapter ends with Jodas telling Joao that he's free to go. He's not a prisoner, but his leg development needs to be monitored for the next few days. Otherwise, it can develop some sort of a cancer. And then even if it's cut, it will still regrow and destroy, you know, destroy his life. Jodas then told him about the crutches and clean clothing, and after some time brought some food to let the man eat. But Joao didn't accept uh, it from him, from it. When Jodas went mm. away to wash itself and came back, it saw Eero push the ball of porridge towards the man, and he took it. And when Eero touched him, he didn't flinch. That's where the chapter ends. Mm. Okay, yeah. So we have Joao uh, uh, being uh, more comfortable with a... Um, an actually female Oankali, yes, um, one that doesn't merely uh, appear as such, uh, but is actually a, an Uloi. Mm. So yeah, I smell a bit of jelly, jellishness, being uh, <laughs> in the air. Um, yeah, I suppose potentially, yeah. Um, could uh, I suppose Aeor could potentially be interested in in uh, uh, this guy as as a human mate, although uh, would would need an uh, Uloi. Uh, to add to the mix yeah i wonder so, also you know the ball still quite young well the um these two are are quite young and, young and the thing is as yeah. like mentioned joao is actually quite old the same age of marina mm -hmm. so maybe too old for them to make a um family unit as such mm -hmm. i guess 
guess let's go to my chapter three prediction. Uh, sure, yeah. What, uh, what do you think is uh, up next? So, well, obviously, we all determined that the humans that were left would show more hatred towards the Onkali and their human families, which we saw just now again. Um, mm-hmm. And as mentioned, you know, earlier, like maybe the man decide, like maybe Air, Air, and the man chooses Air over Jodas, uh, which you know would probably make Jodas very jealous because obviously of how possessive the premature Uloi are. Um, but I'm not sure if it's going to develop to anything, right? Because it feels to me that um, I don't know. Uh, knowing mm-hmm. like that, Jodas listens to Nikan, and Nikan's be like, "Sorry, but he's too old." Just, you know, let the man go. And knowing life, the man will probably go because the whole hatred towards Onkali is real. And we know that what's yeah. left behind is quite, you know, a group of, there are a group of people that basically hate Onkali with probably passion of the thousand sons. So, yeah, nothing's going to mm-hmm. come out of I that. I suppose, um, okay, interesting. Uh, I suppose also Jodas has um, uh, some more tricks to play. Uh, than Aeor necessarily, right? Uh, uh, Jordas can make itself uh, more female or um, use all of its uh, pheromone finagling to... Uh, I mean, to be uh, fair, that's the, that's the most scary part of it, right? Because you, mm. it can literally change the appearance to match what your preference is and you mm-hmm. can literally... And then release pheromones that basically make you not being able to resist, Right. Mm-hmm. So it yep uh, can can match your preferences and also mess with your preferences. <laughs> yes, so it's it's pretty crazy, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the thing. Yeah, like, so it's, uh, typically, it's probably going to leave our, uh, our our friend Zhao with um, uh, <laughs> much more conf- uh, conflicted feelings about the uh, the Oankali. Uh, yeah, and. Uh, as is typical when the humans interact with the Oankali. So that's an interesting, because Jodas earlier was thinking about, like, there was a paragraph in the book that I didn't mention, but it said, like, oh, you know, it, it can match the pre- its body to the preference of one of the partners, right? But what if there's two partners with different preferences? What's going to happen to its body? <laughs> Just going to yo-yo back and forth. Basically, the <laughs> yo-yo become, like, you know, very, like, in between type of thing imagine yeah. like you know i don't know it's just it's going to be it's it's a weird thing right mm-hmm. so i don't know it's just it's going to be interesting the next few chapters of what's going to happen to uh to jodas and uh whether and also i think air is uh, actually you know close to metamorphosis i think because there was a mention of um, like the yeah, her like you know slowly slowly still being in uh, a sexless child but mm. its its metamorphosis can begin quite soon, I think, eventually. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think it's still uh, Eka or yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, we uh, uh, could easily see that. So that might be a uh, uh, a point of tension. Where the the metamorphoses have often been um, at inconvenient times. Exactly, <laughs> and as we know, in the Octavia house. loves inconvenient timing, metamorphosis, and stuff like that. So. <laughs> But yeah. Okay, yeah, sounds good. I guess that's it for today, no? Uh, I think so, yeah. That wraps it up. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Um, we are at Xenothesis. You can find all the places we upload our podcast on xenothesis.com. I was Michael Klinka. And I was Richard Acton. Thank you. Bye. Bye.